May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, hands up, anyone here who would describe themselves as perfect? On the road to being perfect? Working on it? bit of a problem for us really isn't it given what Jesus said this morning be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect we're all supposed to be perfect in fact I think I'd describe you all as perfect but you don't think you're perfect so do you want to turn to your neighbor and spend a moment talking about how God is perfect and how you are or are not perfect And then, what other questions do you have about the Gospel reading we just heard? It's a well-known, it's got lots of little stories we know well in it. Do you have any questions about it? So, how is God perfect? How are you perfect? And what questions do you have? You've got two or three minutes to talk to your neighbour about that. Right, we'll start with the easy one. What questions do you have? Then we'll get on to being perfect. Any questions about those readings? All straightforward. All right then. The thing we need to remember about the first part of the reading was it's not about being a doormat. It's about being part of the resistance. So who is Jesus speaking to? Mostly. Poor people. Servants, slaves, maybe if they can get away, peasants. Peasants don't hit other people. Peasants don't go to court. Peasants don't order people to carry things for a mile. They are the ones who are hit. They are the ones who are sued. They are the ones who are ordered by Roman soldiers to carry stuff for a mile. So there are rules around how you can hit people. So a master could hit their servant or slave with their right hand, the back of the right hand, on the right cheek. So you get hit on the right cheek. When you turn the other cheek, what does the master do then? Can they hit it? No, they can't. You should try it. If you hit somebody across the right cheek and then they turn their left cheek, they can't hit it. The only way they can hit you is by either hitting you with the front of the hand or changing the hand. So it looks like you're acquiescing, but in fact you're resisting. The only way the master can hit you is to do a dishonourable and shameful thing. Now, we live in a world where the rules aren't that tight and we don't care, but they lived in a a world where the rules were important because they bestowed honour. You obey the rules, you get honour, you disobey the rules, you incur shame, an honour-shame society. Same with the suing. Poor people don't sue other people, wealthy people sue. So poor people get dragged to court because they can't pay and they are ordered to offer their top clothes, leaving them in their underwear. Well, if you're standing in your underwear, you might as well just give them the underwear as well. That's what this is about. 
So pretty much naked, give them everything. Leave it to the person who has made you naked to explain why for the small amount of money that they don't need, they made you naked. That is a dishonourable act. It's about resistance. The same with the Roman soldiers. You've lost your day's pay anyway because you've had to carry the load for the Roman soldier. Go the second mile. That prevents somebody else having to lose their day's pay, so therefore their family doesn't get food. But also, the rest of the soldiers will start saying, how come this guy's carrying it for the second mile? What's going on here? That's not what this allowed. You should have taken the burden off him, sent him home. Again, putting pressure on the oppressors. So those sayings, which we too often use as doormat readings, oh, well, you should go the second mile, turn the other cheek, etc., etc., they are about non-violent resistance, showing up the, the structures that oppress people for what they are, structures that oppress people. They are the teachings of resistance. But here we are, at the end of that, being told to be perfect. So what comes to mind when you hear the word perfect? What's perfect about? That you don't think you are perfect. You must think you must have a word for... What are the words that come to mind? Frailty? Well, perfection sounds like the other side of human frailty. So, hmm? Ideal. Ideal, yep. Any other words? Not breaking rules. Not breaking rules. I looked it up on the internet, in the many dictionaries that exist there, and two of the the definitions were conforming absolutely to the description or definition of an ideal type. And I think the one that's in our heads, but you're not saying, entirely without any flaws, defects or shortcomings. And that's the one that we, we hold to, isn't it? Well, I can't be perfect, because I do have flaws. I do have shortcomings. But there was also another one. To bring to completion, to finish. It's not a definition of perfect we think about very often, is it? To bring to completion or finish. But actually that's the meaning that is the closest to the original Latin word, which was perfectus, which is a past participle of the Latin word perfusere. No one here speaks Latin. I never did Latin in school. I was never quite in the top class to be able to do it. And that means to bring to completion. So the origins of the word perfect are to bring to completion, not flawless, without fault, without defect. That's kind of an English take on it, a weird English take. And we do use perfect in that way, to perfect, is to bring to completion. But also we have in grammar the perfect tense. I have washed the car, which is different from the past simple, I washed the car, or the past continuous, I was washing the car. I have washed the car says, the car washing has finished. 
I have completed this task. Now the fact it's in the perfect tense is not making any statement about how well I washed the car. It could be a rubbish washing of the car, but I still have washed the car. The job was done, completed in the past. And in fact, the Greek word that we translate into perfect is telos, which does not mean being flawless, without fault. It simply means complete, mature, ripe, grown up. That's what telos means. When I was a young lad with hair, I spent many hours sitting in a lab drawing the bone structure of the telus order of fish. They were the highest order of fish. All evolution of fish goes to this order. So I had to write, draw all their bone structures and their skulls. They have a lot of bones. I was not very good at it. So when Jesus says, be perfect, he is not saying, be flawless. He is saying, be complete. Be mature. Be grown up. Be ripe. So as I look around here, I can say that I'm looking at a, a bunch of perfect people. Well, I hope you are. Because if you're not perfect by your age, so much hope for the rest of us. So that leads us then to what does God's perfection look like? If we are to imitate God's perfection, what does God's perfection look like? So I asked you to talk about that. What answers did you come up with? Come up with any? Yeah, okay. Well, one of the problems that we have when we read the Bible is we read it in little chunks. So every Sunday we read another little chunk. And so we tend to read that chunk in isolation to everything else. And we hardly ever put that chunk back into, for example, today's reading, into the wider context of the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been listening to now for, I think this is the fourth week of Sermon on the Mount stuff. So this isn't an isolated little saying, and that's the other problem, is we keep picking bits out like this, and putting it on a flag and saying, look, that's what the Bible says. As if we can take out Bible verses and make them into proverbs. That stand on their own with no relationship to where they come from. But actually this little saying was part of something that Jesus was talking about and continues to talk about for two more chapters. And we could actually say that what Jesus is talking about is being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is about what it means to be perfect, complete, mature, ripe, grown up. So how did he start the Sermon on the Mount? started with the Beatitudes, which we kind of think are nice, and we miss the fact that they are really radical. Because he was redefining his society, and redefining who were the people of greatest honour? And therefore, who were the people that God was blessing? So he lived in a world, like our world, where the rich and the powerful and the famous were the people who were seen to be 
the most important, the people of greatest honour, and therefore the ones who God was blessing. Because if they're rich and they're healthy and they're powerful, God must be blessing them. And if you're poor and you're unhealthy, you're sick, then God isn't blessing you. So God isn't on your side. God is on the side of the rich and the powerful. But who does Jesus say are the ones who are honoured, revered and blessed? The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which isn't about rule keeping, it's about justice, God's justice. The pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, God's justice. You, when people revile you and persecute you. That's a very different list from what anyone else in his society would have given. It's the people at the bottom and the people working to change their society. They were the ones that God honoured. They are the ones that should be revered. They are the ones that God is blessing. They are the perfect ones, the ones who are mature. And grown up. And when we are like that, Jesus says, we become the salt fires that really ignite, ignite God's fire of justice. So salt wasn't something you just put in food. Salt plates were what you put in the dung fires to make the fires really burn hot. So they actually cooked. When we are like that, then we are God-revealing lights. And last week, Jesus went on to talk about our attitude to the law of Moses and the traditions that had been built up around that law. And we heard some more of that today. And I think he's saying that when we see the law as a set of commands to be obeyed, and when we obey them, we become perfect, then we're in trouble because we miss what the law and those traditions are all about. We miss their intent. We miss the attitudes that sit behind those commandments. But if we're willing to get behind those commandments, then we're on the road to perfection. For example, he said, it's not enough not to murder. I mean, none of us murder, do we? So we can all feel pretty good about that. Well, assuming none of us have murdered. But he said, well, it's not enough, actually. If you harbour any anger, if you're contemptuous, if you're hateful, then you're as good as murdered. It's the attitude behind. So lots of people say, well, I could keep that law, that commandment, I'm a pretty good person. Jesus is saying, no. You need to get behind that. You need to change how you see other people. And we can see in America and places in here what happens when we don't get behind that. We can set up boundaries between us and them. We're in, they're out. We're important, they're not important. We should be kept safe from them. And then today he goes even further. It's not enough not to hate your enemies. In fact, he says, you know, you're taught that you can hate them, but actually I say... You can't hate them, and in fact, it's not enough not to just hate, not hate them, 
But you are to love them. You are to love your enemies. You are to pray for your enemies. It's pretty hard. And then he talks about how our Father who is in heaven, where the rain comes from, and where the sun is, the rain falls on everyone, righteous or unrighteous, good or evil, the rain still falls on them, despite what some Pentecostal preachers might say. And the sun still shines on them, sometimes too much. We are to love all people, all people, just as God does. And that, of course, takes us back to the Beatitudes. Now that's what perfection is. It's a high bar, isn't it? But that's what Jesus said we should be aiming for. That kind of perfection. Those are the kinds of people God created us to be. I talked last week about, or the week before, must have been the week before actually, because Wendy preached last week. Uh, N.T. Wright uh, describing righteousness as when we are image bearers. We are made to be the, to be, we were made in the image of God. Which means we bear the image of God to all creation. One of the books I read a few years ago, three years ago I think, because I popped up in this sermon three years ago, was a book by Rob Bell and Don Golden talking about the nature of God. And they describe the key characteristics of God as compassion and mercy and justice and love. That's what God's perfection is. Compassion, mercy, justice and love. And I'd add generosity in there. And in fact, we can see the entire, all four Gospels describing Jesus living out God's compassion and mercy and justice and love. God's perfection. And we are created to bear that image, to be God's compassion, mercy and justice and love in this world. That's what Rob and Don say, that God wants people who will enflesh that compassion, mercy, justice and love. And when we do that, then we are perfect. Growing up, being mature, ripe. So perfection is not about being flawless. It is not about having no faults. But it is about growing into the person that God creates us to be, as individuals and as a community. We can't do this on our own. And when we're on that road, we are becoming perfect, faults and all. We often get fruit, avocados and fruit brought here. All of it is perfect. It's ripe, it's ready to be eaten. And they often have lots of faults in them, don't they? But they're still perfect. That's who we are. Perfect with all our faults. Our faults, in fact, are part of our perfection. So hang on to that. Well, in a week or two, two weeks in fact, we're into Lent. So what should we spend Lent doing? Well, maybe Lent could be a time where we reflect on our perfection. 
our journey into perfection and what it means for us to be perfect in God, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, and to grow, to mature, to become more perfect with all our faults, not despite them, but with them. I want to finish with another way of uh, saying that last line, and this is from the message written by Eugene Peterson. So it's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. But he, in his paraphrase, tries to get into, and I don't always agree with the way he's done it, but on this occasion I think he's nailed it. He tries to look at what the Greek says. He's not confined by the tradition of how words are translated. (coughs) And he says... Jesus said, in a word, what I'm saying is, grow up, your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others, the way God lives towards you. Maybe this can be our mantra for Lent, learning to continue on our, to go on our journey to live generously and graciously the way God is towards us.